Welcome to Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on this season's topic, grief. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I found that things aren't just black or white or a simple yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I'll be sharing my own process through personal stories and interviews with others in an effort to help investigate the process of and recovery through grief. If you'd like to share your story, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we start. My stories and the stories of others on this podcast are told through the lens of our own experience. The revelation of our process is ours to tell. If you disagree with the views or stories on this podcast, know that we are not speaking on anything other than our own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Nothing expressed or mentioned in this podcast is an endorsement or is meant to be taken as advice. It is strictly the sharing of our own experiences and recovery. Any feelings this podcast activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on these experiences and choices are yours, and they are not anyone else's burden to carry. Trigger warning, death, brain cancer, sudden death. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Maybe podcast. If you are just tuning in, I'm really excited you're tuning in today. If you're a repeat listener, I can't thank you enough for coming back and listening over and over again. It means a lot to me and to everyone who's been on the podcast and also my producer, Roderick. Today, I have someone really, really, really great. So I have been creeping on this person uh, virtually for a while. I've known her for a long time. I want to say I met her in maybe 2010, 2011, around that time frame. And she is just a gorgeous, beautiful person that I've stayed in touch with who has um, had a very significant grief that I have watched from afar. And I've just loved how she's walked through that grief. Not loved like I'm happy that that happened, but it has been um, an honor to watch her go through that because she has been transparent about it. So today I want to welcome Mia Andrioli. Did I say it right? Did I say it you right? You did. You nailed okay, it. You. I got nervous at the last second. Okay, Mia Andrioli. And Mia, you and I met at Harvard and Stone. We sure did. You were dangling from the rafters, girl. Yes, I was. And <laughs> and so Mia, this is like when Harvard and Stone first opened. I, I want to say it was like 2010, 2011, right around there. It might have been 2011. Yeah. 2011. Yeah. And this bar was a BFD. It was a big deal. It was a high volume cocktail. 
establishment, Mia was the only woman who worked there as a bartender. She was the sole female and she held it down for all the females because she was just as good as these dudes slinging high volume. If not better. (laughs) If not better, let's be honest. Okay. And she looks so gorgeous. Like I, and, and, and she looks today exactly like I remember her then, like no time has passed. Um, and she, would have her hair done in a very traditional 1950s, 1960s pinup. She looked like a better looking version of the Rosie the Riveter poster. And it was just such a, like, if you've ever been to Harvard and Stone, this bar is very industrial. It's very dirty. It's very gritty. Mm-hmm. And the highlight of this bar and why I think it was so popular was because we had this very industrial, hardcore, you know, type of environment and the entertainment and the theme behind it was this female factory worker vibe. So there was like this heavy feminine presence in the shows. Uh, the girls were very athletic. We were hanging from the ceilings doing kind of like acrobatic type aerial stuff along with dancing. We were we couldn't wear heels. We had to wear like these work boot type things, you know, because it was such a dangerous actually place to kind of play around on. And and Mia was like this one female, like just beacon of light behind the bar. And um, and I was so, like mesmerized by her every time I, I saw her. And she was just always so kind to us and so sweet and just such a great bartender. That's how I know Mia. Now, I've stayed in touch with Mia over interwebs and through, you know, friend circles. And yeah. I've watched her become an artist. She made art for me. Uh, she was commissioning art during the pandemic. I have two framed like they're like, I don't know what like they're not cartoons, but they're like. They're, they're like little weirdo illustrations of yes, like they're... what was happening in the world. Yes. And she she was making these commissions or I commissioned her. I have these two really great like little cartoon like uh, 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 illustrations, one of me being a showgirl and one of me protesting. Um, and I love those. So I know that she has an artistic background. And now and since she was also doing photography, but now it seems like photography is your main. It's my maybe jam, your girl. Main, that's your jam. It's my jam. So she's a photographer in Boston, staygoldimages.com. That's where you see her work. That's where she's doing her work. I love seeing her work. And so Mia, another little welcome. Is there anything you want to- It's so good to be here. I'm so happy to have you. I'm so psyched. I mean, I love how, you know, the gram just keeps us connected. Yeah. 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 If If we didn't have that, I don't know if we would be connected. I don't think so. Yeah. But I do have to say, piggybacking off of the Harvard and Stone experience, you- And all the other women there, Eva and Nikki, I was, you guys kind of took me in as well. And I think being the only woman on that bar, you know, that's a little bit of an intimidating experience. Um, But coming into a place where these like beautiful goddesses hanging from the rafters and you guys were just so cool and like took me in and it was just, you respected what I did. I respected what you did. And it's just a no brainer that we're connected now. So I'm so glad. Yeah, there was a lot of camaraderie between I feel like the bartenders and the dancers. I, I because that place was such a monster. When I say that it was packed, it was like that bar was high volume. It was five deep, meaning there were five people, five hundred covers a night. Yeah, like yeah, insanity. Yeah, it was when it was at its busiest, when it was doing its best at that time. It was packed, line out front. You could not move, and 
there were five people behind each other trying to get drinks. And they hated it when we'd have to stop to do the show. Oh, my God. Move all the stuff off the bar. Yes. 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 (laughs) And the bartenders did not care. I'm sure you guys were like, great, a welcomed break to like reset and get things back to where you wanted. Yeah. And not have to deal with people. But you guys never, you know, and I'm, you know, you guys never had a problem with it. The bartenders there have always been the best, Um, especially in those early days. That was a really, really magical time. Absolutely. So anything else? Photography, photography. Love all yeah, this stuff. Yeah, I mean, the photography thing really came about, I mean, I've always been carrying a camera with me ever since I was little. My parents, my grandparents, everybody always had a camera. So I kind of just, you know, it's like osmosis, right? And so when I lived in New York City, I was a makeup artist, but I was so enamored by the lighting guys on set, the photographers. So I was always like creeping on them when I should have been like creeping on faces. But um, but anyways, fast forward to the pandemic and I got furloughed for my job and I had this sort of like come to Jesus moment and I woke up from a dead sleep and I said, what was I doing in my past life that brought me a lot of joy that I'm not currently doing? And it was just like ding, ding photography. So I basically just went and bought a whole new kit and just started shooting for myself. And for friends and friends of friends started hurting. I was shooting again. And, and it just was super organic the way that my business transpired. And I got connected with people in the beauty business, which for me, obviously being a makeup artist back in the day, it just made sense. And now I'm working predominantly with women run businesses and it's just 1000% my jam. It's awesome. Yeah. It brings me so much joy. I love it. And I love seeing the work that you post. And I can tell it's very female oriented. It makes total sense. I didn't know you were a makeup artist, but that makes absolute sense because very few people are doing their hair and makeup like you who haven't had that kind of experience. I mean, nowadays it's a little easier because there's so many tutorials. But, you know, back when I first met you, you know, this is like not that far into the Internet. Oh, I'll tell you. Yeah. Here, here's a here's a marker for you. In 2011, when we first were at Harvard and Stone, we did not allow anyone to take photos. And we didn't have Instagram yet. And we didn't have Instagram and no one was allowed to take photos and people listened. Yeah, totally like, different People time. didn't take photos. Like there was when it, it was a kind of a best kept secret. Everyone was hearing about it, but no one could see what it was unless they came and saw it. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, the bartenders helped and security was constantly like, put your phone down. There's no phone. They were told house rules at the front before yep. they came in, you know, like you don't touch the experience, like just yeah. be immersed in the experience, which yeah. we're all missing now. Yeah, yeah. 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 So this season podcast, Gray, maybe really uplifting stuff, LOL. Like it's, it's grief. <laughs> it's grief. And like everyone I've had on, I'm like, welcome to the podcast. Let's talk sad. Um, it's not ideal for, you know, the, the uplifting and the, the feel good feels, but I do hope that in doing this type of a season, this can serve as some kind of a blueprint for people to listen to other people, uh, feel some kind of camaraderie, some kind of alignment with them or uh, through process of listening to other people can gain some tools, some help, some, some guidance, some for nothing else, just to be like, that magical feeling when you settle in and you're like, oh, I'm not alone. You know, that mm-hmm. because I think anytime, and this could be for anything difficult that anybody's ever gone through, there's that moment when you're really suffering that you either haven't said out loud the thing you need to say, or you haven't talked to someone 
about it and then next level talk to someone about it who also might have has had that thing what I call find your people and it's Mm -hmm. not your friends and family necessarily you have people you have your people but then when you've gone through something traumatic or a yeah I'm just gonna say traumatic because that hits everything you have to find your people for it and I mean the people who have gone through that same thing they don't have to Mm -hmm. have gone through it exactly the same way but they have to have gone through the same thing and that's your people and that that little bit of space between before you said something before you met someone and after, I think is a really big transition, a really big bridge. So that being said, um, will you tell us as much or as little about grief? <laughs> I know, Let's right? Get it. Let's just get into it. Right? Why not? <laughs> um, so my experience with grief um, came in 2016. So I found out that I was pregnant in March 2016. Uh, my husband actually used to work at Harvard and Stone with Jillian yes. and I. Yes. Um, love behind the bar. And so we ended up getting pregnant in March of um, 2016. Super excited, totally surprised. Um, Had gone to my OB and everything was totally textbook, like very, very healthy. I was drinking, you know, multiple green juices a day, still working out, all the things, low risk. And um, yeah, my pregnancy was great. Like I totally accepted my body and this this belly and just this, you know, planning this life ahead. And so we get towards um, the end of my pregnancy. And I was about, um, I think I was about 37 and a half, almost 38 weeks at this point. And that particular day, I didn't really feel a lot of movement um, with the baby. And so I'd gone down, we were living in Providence at the time, and I went down to the street um, to this little cafe and I got a cookie like this big and a big Fanta soda. And I was just like ingesting as much sugar just to see if I could get her to move because that's usually what would happen. And then I ended up calling one of my best friends and I said, you know, I'm just not feeling a lot of movement. She said, just, you know, call your midwife. They're probably just going to say go to triage just to do like a non-stress test. So that's what happened. Um, and they said, you know, everything was fine. I was there for a few hours. She just was like up under my left rib. There was, uh, because I was so big at that point, not a lot of amniotic fluid and sent me home. And they just said, you know, you have um, your last appointment, your last checkup in two days. Just make sure you tell your midwife. Good to go. And so then a week later, which is election week, 2016. Oh, my uh, God. Oh, my, oh, my God. Busy week. I'm sorry. Uh, I just had compound trauma for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just kind of like to like throw that in there as like a reminder of like the time. Um, So I was, um, I had gone to my last uh, midwife appointment with Rich. And that particular day I was, I struggle with anxiety and depression and my anxiety was like through the roof that day. So he had met me, he came from work and met me at the office and we, um, we were sitting there waiting for the midwife to come in and, you know, she had me on the table, pulled up my shirt. She's like, oh my gosh, the most beautiful belly I've ever seen. And, and I'm like, all right, lady, let's like, just yeah, get to cut the, to the chain. You know, I was like really in it. And so she's like doing her little Doppler and she's like, oh wait, no, that's your heartbeat. Wait, is that the baby's? And she was stressing me out. And so she's like, you know what? I'm going to go fire up the ultrasound next door. She's like, I just can't tell um, what's going on. So um, so she ends up taking me and Rich next door and with a technician there. And so, you know, they put the jelly on your belly and doing the ultrasound and the woman is standing here with the screen, uh, the, the back of the screen to me and I'm getting really irritated. I'm like, turn the screen to me. 
And Rich could see how agitated I was. And he was like, hey, can you turn the screen so we can see it? And she was just like ice cold. Oh, my God. And I was like, what? What the fuck is happening? And I look over and Jen, the midwife, and this was like slow motion. And I like look over and it's really dim in there. And I literally see one gigantic cartoon sized tear in her tear duct. And I was like, oh, my God. And it just falls hits the floor and I feel like I can like see all the beads. And she said the phrase that changed my life. She said, there's no heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was such an unbelievable blow. Uh, it was like immediate shock. It's really hard to describe what all those things and feelings and emotions were in that moment. And I just said, I don't understand. And then Rich said he didn't understand. And she said it again, said it again. And then we both started crying. And the cry that came out of my body, Jillian, was one that is like similar to like a wolf that you would hear in a movie. Like so it's, it was so guttural and something of an animal. And it was something that I was like very surprised came out of my body, but also now not surprised. Um, so we, she basically said to us, you need to go to, to triage. You need to go and meet up with one of the other midwives at triage and so we did and we went over there and it seemed like the longest drive and it was only five minutes. We got there and and we spoke with the woman and, and she said, you can do two things right now. You can either go home and rest for a little bit um, and just labor on your own or you can, you know, if you need to go home, get some stuff and just come back and then we can induce you and kind of get this show on the road. And in that particular moment, I will never forget that Rich said an observation that I like something clicked and I just went into warrior mode and I just kind of left all my emotions there in the elevator. And I just went into this mode of like, I need to do what I have to do, protect myself, like protect this baby, you know, the most that I can do. And so we ended up going home and I just, I needed to take a shower and I needed to cry and say my goodbyes. And that was, um, that was really hard. And I actually like, I think the photographer and me, I needed to document what the most, um, the most broken version of myself Hmm. was. And I still have that photo and it's something that like, I'll see every once in a while. And it's just like, I have these moments of being like, you have come a long way, girl. Um, but anyway, so I, you know, said my goodbyes, we called our parents and just, you know, let them know what was happening. And we, you know, went to the hospital, I got induced. And from there it was, um, it was really intense of, you know, lots of different medications. And I think, you know, I got to the point where I, I started to labor and then my, you know, my water broke and, going to labor and, and the contractions and everything, it was just all too much. And I just said, I need an epidural and I need every drug that you can give me. Like, I don't want to feel anything. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, 12 hours later, I, um, I was in active labor and I was really 
I was pretty high on drugs. Let's just be real. And I had this, um, I had this very sort of mystical or spiritual moment. The nurses that surrounded me in that 24 to 48 hour period and my husband being there, it was one of the most like angelic experiences I've ever had. Like I literally felt like I was surrounded by goddamn angels. And again, I was like really out of it. And, and one of the nurses was here, Rich was here. And then the other nurse that was delivering was here, the midwife. And we were all touching. We were all in this circle. And I felt these vibrations and I just stopped. And I said, like, this is a really like, I can't remember my exact words, but like this energy right now, this is such beautiful energy. And I think they were all like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, you know, because it was so dark and heavy, but I just like, I just recognize like really good human beings and the power of people helping each other. And anyway, I, um, at that point, my, you know, my body was so strong. I'd been training for like two years and I two pushes and she was out and it was a very surreal moment and that it was so quiet, mm. like such a sterile and quiet room. And that will still haunt me forever. Just that, uh, the lack of sound, the void. And so, you know, they're, they're doing their thing. Like, cleaning up the baby and getting me all together and suturing me up. And, and then they said, you know, do you want to hold the baby? And this is not something that I had expected to be asked. And, and I did, and I'm so glad that I did because I've read a thousand stories and there are some people that opted not to because they were so in it and that mm -hmm. they regret it. And I, I just knew that if I didn't do it, I may regret it. And it was, you know, the most beautiful hour of my life. And she was perfect. And, um, and there, um, there was a pastor that worked with the church. I mean, I'm sorry, with the um, hospital and her name is Carolyn. And she's one of the most wonderful human beings. And she came up and she said, hi, my name is Carolyn. And I work with the hospital and I just, I don't know if you guys are religious or spiritual, um, but I would like to, you know, acknowledge your baby's existence. And I was in this really weird state of just being like, well, who are you? And I just felt very like protective and defensive of the energy of me and Rich and our daughter. And, and I'm glad that Rich encouraged her to come in because I'm, I'm still friends with her to this day. And and she said these beautiful things about Rosalie and she said prayers and we, and I'm not a religious person at all. And I really embraced what she did. And I'm so glad that she was there. And um, anyway, so after, you know, they, they took Rosalie away after a few hours and, um, and then that's when the social worker comes in and then that's when this person comes in and then it starts to get even more medical and like, this is what happens when you leave here. And so I think I had spent maybe another night and then we left, you know, that next day, which 
Oh, it was elect. By the way, it was elect. The election was happening while this was going on. Yeah, I, I, (laughs) because I like looked up at one point. I think I was still having contractions, and I looked at the screen, and I like see the red numbers, and I'm like, this can't be happening. And we've just like, yeah. So that was that. So that was weird. And um, anyway, so we left. her birthday's on the 8th. And so I think we left the 9th and we walked out of the hospital with no baby. And what's so interesting is that I don't know, this is something just very small is that when you have a baby, they offer you a wheelchair and they wheel you out to your car. But I didn't, I walked out and I, I had like looked into that because I was just, I'm a curious person they wheel you out because you're holding a baby. But like, mm-hmm. I walked out. I mean, I still had to go through labor and delivery. And like, I walked out. Like, I wasn't offered that. I don't know. That just felt like a little. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I don't like but that I, because if you had a, had you had a C-section or even the fact that most women have to have some kind of stitching after. After that. <laughs> right. So just for anybody who maybe hasn't considered this, doesn't know this, or if you might be of the male variety, um, stitches in your hoo-ha. So pick the most sensitive part of your body where there's constant friction and then stitch it up and then be like, go ahead, take a walk. Like, I don't know. That whole thing seems... I mean, I don't want to get into how much we punish women over and just have no problem with their suffering in general. Like... It's very clear to me that humanity as a whole, and specifically the United States, cares very little for the suffering of women. I'm just going to say that off yeah. the bat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't like that. I don't like no. that at all. No, I don't like that. Uh, but that's that could be for another podcast, Jillian. Okay. Um, so we ended up, you know, we walked to our car and um, and then we got in this car that, you know, there's an empty car seat in the back Mm -hmm. and we're drive home and getting home is when it started to get really real. And I think when we opened the doors to our house, that was like the actual, I think, introduction to grief. Mm -hmm. I would say even more so the next two weeks after like my hormones started to like chill a little bit and the meds were wearing off. Um, and I started to heal a little bit, but yeah, I mean, that's really like it, you're walking into an inescapable grief mm-hmm. and you know, the, I mean, everything was ready to go. The, the crib, the whole room, everything was all decked and, um, you had had an entire baby shower. Oh yeah. Two of them, you know, I, the whole thing, I mean, everybody in the, the town that we we're in, everybody knew we were pregnant. I mean, everybody knew we were pregnant. So, um, the something that like visually hit me really hard was I'd come down to the second floor to the kitchen living room level and uh, Rosalie's bedroom was right next to the kitchen. And I noticed that the, the light that would come through the window just looked different. Mm. I know maybe that sounds dramatic or, but I think as somebody who being a photographer and light is everything in photography I immediately noticed that the light just seemed dimmer Mm. and um, yeah. So, 
I mean, that's that's my introduction to grief, that sort of ball of wax there, Jillian. It's it's such a compound situation uh, because it's it's the loss of a child, which I think most people would agree is probably one of the greatest losses <laughs> anybody could endure. On top of that, there is the physical assault of what your body has to go through of just being in general discomfort, right? And to have to go through that sacrifice and not have the quote unquote positive outcome. I don't know how you want to say it, like yeah. the desired outcome, right? Like that insult to injury, like it doesn't take much of my physical discomfort for everything to go to shit emotionally for me. <laughs> so, it, you know, I'm saying like it takes very little for me to already like physical discomfort and I'm already like, you know, up shit creek. So yeah. that and then the grief of all the what sometimes is called ambiguous griefs, the planning, the things that haven't happened yet, but that are you have your expectations in those moments mm -hmm. of like the the dreams, the things you've seen in your head that now you have to confront aren't going to happen. Yes. And it's like gone. gone. Yes. Yeah. And like ha having to like, I think until someone, I live very much in the future, much to my chagrin. I don't want to live in the future, but I live a lot in the future. And that anxiety creates a lot of anticipatory grief for me. And I don't always realize how much is there, how much I've constructed that hasn't happened yet until I, you know, something else has happened. And then I have to like kind of re- it just comes back. I'm like, oh, wow, look at all of those things I constructed that haven't happened yet that I was kind of planning on. Mm -hmm. And it's like all and that and those are all griefs, depending on what that means to you. Um, I just can't think of a more compound traumatic. And then, of course, the grief of the 2016 election, which m many of us were um, enduring at the same time as you were enduring this massive grief, which, you know, I guess, you know, I, I try to like understand from other people's point of view best I can. But I know for women, the day after that election was a really dark day. And um, I, and I'm not and, and I don't think that that's um, specifically just like men felt this way and women felt this way. Even women. I just think women as a whole, however you felt about other candidates, there was a really clear message in that election for women whether you voted for the woman or not, I think there were some really strong cues in that election. And that day after that election for women, I was I like went to yoga class and I did my normal things. And every woman I saw, and I don't know who they voted for. And yes, I live in a very liberal area, but not, you know, not everyone voted for the woman in my area. Not everyone voted for the third party. Some people voted for the guy, you know? So it's like, even with that, there was a solemnness to women that day that I have mm -hmm. yet to see again, even after the reversal of Roe. Like there was a solemnness that day about, yeah, women, you can be anything but president. It felt very much like that. It felt very much like another squish down, another whatever. So yeah, another step that, back. Yes, that day and in essence had a very like those that that day or week leading up. Like there was, it felt a heavy a heaviness. Um, and, and so I can't imagine that on top of that, on top of that, on top of that. It's just so much. And, and we're rolling into the holidays, too. Oh, yay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's. So that was a lot. So, I mean, my next question is, like, how the fuck did you get out of that? Like, how, like, I, I have something, like, you have been 
transparent on social media. When you were ready, you were transparent on social media. And I have kept tabs on that. Um, the things that you write, and you did this, I know, at least two years in a row. Um, I think I've done it six. Okay. And the, yeah. I looked back on the two specific ones because every time you do this post, you add some things, it seems like. And yeah. so the one I have most recently is from November 8th, 2022. And you say it's now six years from the day that Rosalie Grace Andrioli was born still. And you say these last six years have been full of lessons and lessons are meant to be shared. You share that one in 160 births will be stillbirths and the statistics are shocking. Odds are just that odd. And I have to comment and say, I know three women that have had stillborns. And I might know more that just yeah. like I, I, I'm in touch or know them, but I don't know their days in and days out. But I know three right off the bat right. that I can well, think of. To, to piggyback on some of your episodes from your first season about abortion, I think that with stillbirth is kind of a parallel in that not a lot of people talk about it. And I think it maybe it's the same with miscarriage and I think with abortion. And I just hearing these statistics, whether it's one in four with abortion, uh, one in 160 with stillbirth, like these are real fucking numbers. Mm -hmm. That's 21,000 children a year mm -hmm. that are stillborn. Like, mm -hmm. and it's just wild that we don't have more dialogue around all three of these particular top specific topics. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's all. I agree. Um, and I'm, I'm like, I agree. And I'm curious, like I have to figure out, I'm curious like you. So I'm like, especially when something feels off. So I'm like, what, well, why, like, why aren't we talking about it? Is it, is it something where it's like, it's just another way to keep women kind of separate from each other. Cause women talk, that's like our superpowers. We talk, we communicate. 100%. Or because I think it's like, it makes, it makes people sad. I mean, this is something that somebody has said to me, like they don't want to talk about it because it makes them sad. And I'm like, happened to me, not you motherfucker. Like, right. And if you're you know? sad, imagine how I feel. <laughs> right. So I think there's this like weird, like, I don't know if it's like a lack of empathy or compassion or people are just, people are scared to be vulnerable. People are scared to try to imagine themselves in other people's shoes. I don't know. I don't know what the disconnect is. I'm so curious about people and emotional intelligence and intelligence of the heart. I'll, I'll just, I don't know. I'm going to fight for this till I die, Jillian. <laughs> I have, I have a couple theories in, yeah. in going through several seasons and talking to my friend who also has a master's in psychology, who I bring her on, Jada Ellingham. So there's a couple things, I think. One, I think you nailed in emotional intelligence. I think we as a community, as a society, we don't see a lot of value in emotional intelligence. And we don't, there's no like classes, right? There's no like, some of the things in our society that we need most, like taxes and budgeting and emotional and, you know, maturity, like we don't do those things. It's right. like up to everyone to just kind of figure it out. Um, and so I think, yes, emotional maturity, that's a thing. I think also there's this very interesting thing about uncomfortable feelings that Jada's talked about where when people have uncomfortable feelings, they either purge it, like they, they push it out, like in a way, or they like take it in and they kind of like, it consumes them. And, but most of the time people want to get it as far away from them as possible because it's uncomfortable. 
mm-hmm. which leads me to this idea that I feel like grief in particular, people act clear closer to that like it's an airborne illness than anything else. It feels like sometimes that the idea of that feeling that when people are empathizing or even sympathizing, that discomfort is so great that they almost feel like they're going to catch it and they have to get away from it. Like, I can't have mm-hmm. that. I can't, I can't have that happen to me. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine that I can't have it happen to me. Grief's not catchy, guys. It's not <laughs> catchy. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, is uh, it's, it's unavoidable. Like, we're all going to experience grief. Yeah. All of us. You yeah. cannot get out of this world yeah, without we try. experiencing grief. Yeah, we try. We try, try. really hard to. We try really hard. Yeah. Because it's so, you know, and I don't think enough people are taught how to ride their emotions, right? I certainly wasn't. And I found every way to dodge, purge, mm-hmm. you know, cover up, drug out. You know, I never okay. was a big drug person, but I was definitely a drinker and mm-hmm. definitely a seeker of, you know, other things to occupy my mind, of, you know, workaholicism, all those things to not have to deal with however I felt in the moment. Um, so I, those are some of my ideas about it. Because yes, these things that we're talking about are so uncomfortable for people. And the crazy thing is, is with anything hard, there's no way around it. There's only through it. Mm-hmm. And that's what nobody wants to do, right? Like, <laughs> that's the only shortcut and it ain't going to be short. You notice everywhere else we want shortcuts. We don't want to go around. We want mm-hmm. the shortcut. But when it comes to this, and it's not a shortcut, but it is like a direct route, um, to getting to, you got to go through it, not around it. Um, Walk through that fire. You got to do it. Yes. You, and you say that somewhere in this, I'm going to keep going because I love every point that you make on this. And I think it's so poetic. Um, You say life, it'll bring you to your knees and slap the naivety off of your stupid face. And I relate to that. (laughs) I don't, I don't know why. I'm just like, yeah. Yes I mean, you that. can take that and you can apply that to so many other areas besides grief. And it's it's the truth. Yes. I like to say that when uh, sometimes uh, someone, a peer of mine, teacher, whatever, and we mentor students, whatever, and I'll always make comments because not to these students, of course, yeah. only behind their backs. I was like, yes, because <laughs> life hasn't fucked them yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't gotten the naivety slapped off their face, you know, like not yet. They will. Right. Because, and the reason that I wrote that was because up until that 39th and a half day, I was like, oh, everything's fine. I'm going to be fine. You know, like nothing bad can happen to me. And then, you know, within that 30 seconds and that woman said there's no heartbeat, it was just, you know, life just smacked me in the face. I was like, oh, shit, this can happen to me. Mm-hmm. I am one in 160. And it's wild. I hate that you're one in 160. I hate that anyone's one in 160. Same. Um, you say the journey of parenthood is vastly different for everyone. Be gentle with judgments. Now, this enrages me if someone was judging you. Now I want to be murderous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's a it's more of a broad stroke statement in that people are uh, something about our society. People are just like, oh, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? Why aren't you pregnant? Why don't you have kids? Mm-hmm. And you know, just so intrusive with questions. Right. And it's like, it's such an intimate and private thing. Mm -hmm. And I think another 
thing that we can put in that box of sort of taboos is like IVF and infertility. I think it's something that so many, so many women are going through IVF alone in silence mm-hmm. and are suffering. Mm-hmm. And wh- why aren't we talking about that? We know, I know so many people that have had IVF babies, but you don't want to talk about it. Why? Yeah. 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 And I, I'm wondering too, if it's the, the minute you start telling people, not your people, right? I'm going to make a differentiation. People, yes. people, people, because they're asking too. Like once people start snooping around asking and then if you like tell people there's an expectation and sometimes with some of these things, it's especially IVF, infertility, stuff like that. The stakes are so high and oftentimes there is many losses associated with that. Either mm-hmm. the loss of the cycle not working, things not working right off the bat, you know, a, a lot of miscarriages. Sure. A lot of, you know, things like that in in several women that I know their journey to motherhood um, or their experiences with uh, trying to become mothers has been a, a series of mic- micro or macro losses. Mm-hmm. So it's like to then add people's expectations or curiosities or their know-how, you know, them knowing about it probably I would assume would add a bunch of like noise possibly in the background or extra pressure or whatever. But nonetheless, find your people. I'm always going to say that, find your people. But it is, there is so much. And I don't like, I do feel like this conversation is changing a little bit. It does seem like older generations are a little bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Tone deaf when it comes to this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do, the people that I hear that say those types of things and they're inquiring are usually a little bit older. I yeah, feel like, sure. I feel like now, I, and I'm glad that that kind of word has started to get out that it's like, yo, don't, don't ask those kind of questions because you really don't know what someone's going through. Like, and can I just jump in there and say yes. that don't ask those questions if you aren't ready to hear some like shitty shit. Ooh, that's a really good one. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because like somebody said, I was photographing an event the other night and I asked, hey, can I take your photograph? These two lovely women, one was a little bit older. We're just chatting, you know, how I get blah, 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 chatting, where are you from, this and that. And all of a sudden the woman looks at me, she goes, oh, do you have kids? I said, they're not alive. And she was flabbergasted and I just kept on and I was like, okay, so, you know, what's going on with this and this? And I didn't stop. And she had tears in her eyes and I didn't do it on purpose, but I also, you asked, you asked and I didn't feel like holding it in. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, you gotta be, if you're going to ask, you gotta be ready. Yeah. That's a really good point. Whether it's, it's about fertility, if it's about politics, if it's about family, if it's about relationships jobs, money. Like if you're going to ask a question, you better be ready for the answer. That's such a good, that is such a good statement. And I, I don't know why I don't often think about it from that side, because I've talked a little bit on the podcast and some of the episodes previous about the people pleasing when it comes to grief, Mm -hmm. like how much do I want to tell someone, how much capacity do I think they have? Do I, am I going to have to caretake them in this moment because I'm further along in this journey? It's more my truth, you know, like Am I willing to do all that work? Oh, look, they want, I can tell how badly they want me to be okay. Should mm-hmm. I just tell them I'm doing fine because I don't really want to tell them the truth because it, I don't think they can handle it. Like, and how much people pleasing comes about or how much canvassing in that moment happens because of what you've had to go through with people. And because people, again, they're asking you how you are, but are you ready for that answer? Right. 
But don't you think that's also, I was reading something on, I don't know where I was reading it the other day, but about just like us as humans in our society right now is that we just say like, oh, how are you doing? Like, it's just part of this like routine, right? right? But people don't actually want to know what the person's going to say. Like, oh my gosh, my, you know, my, my grandmother died last week. Like, no, no, no. I just wanted to ask you how you were and like walk away. Right. It's a, it's a greeting. It's not a actual question. Correct. Yes. So I think it kind of falls into that. I feel like I was listening to whatever you were listening to because someone else like said that very clearly. They were like, nobody actually wants to know how you are. This is a greeting. It's not, I'm not even, I'm paraphrasing. I I think it was something on like NPR or something. Maybe. Yeah. So I think that's really, really good advice. And just a reminder for everyone that um, if you're not ready to hear what that answer is, uh, and it could be intense, like the inten- if you're not ready to hear the most intense version of that answer, then maybe don't ask that question. Um, you say that you have two options. You can avoid the pain or you can walk right through the damn fire. End yeah. quote. Mic drop. Yeah. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You say trauma is traumatic. You will have a handful of meltdowns, breakdowns, and freakouts. Yeah, I had them all. Had them all. I mean, and they all come. And this is what's so interesting about grief and and emotions is that it will come at the most unexpected and inconvenient times. And it doesn't have an expiration date. And it will live with you forever. It just will get a little bit easier. That's definitely something that I would tell people is that it will get easier. Um, but it's always just, it's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like meltdowns and freakouts, I had them all. Had every single type you could imagine. And, but I think from years of my life, like reading a lot about Buddhism and about you know the concept of suffering and being in it and sitting in it, that I, and I'm just very dialed into my body and my emotions and I'm a crier. Like I'm, I'm somebody that, you know, I'm okay at this point in my life with a being vulnerable, but with my emotions and, you know, when these meltdowns and freakouts happen, I mean, I just embraced it and I let them happen. And I'm glad that I did because I think it helped progress my stages of grief, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. I I don't think that, um, I don't think anything can be moved through quickly if it is not expressed. You know, I don't think there's any advantage to keeping anything inside unless you're trying to feel terrible and possibly make yourself sick. Um, it, it's interesting that you say like you're, you describe yourself as a crier Um, I come from a family that was very, um, didn't really show emotions except for anger or resentment, but not a lot of, not really allowed to show a variety of emotions. There wasn't a lot of emotional intelligence, a lot of, there was no mindfulness. There was no, not a lot of caretaking of emotions in me growing up. And in fact, um, tears to me, I took it in my family as a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting you say you're a crier because like, your voice is so strong, like even listening to you right now, I'm like, you should maybe consider voiceover work or a podcast or something because your voice is like so <laughs> strong, but feminine, but like nice to hear. 
And you look so strong and feminine and nice to look at. I'm saying all that because as someone like myself who has an idea sometimes or an old idea about what strength is and what weakness is and what vulnerability is, um, I think you're an excellent example to someone who might have conflicting ideas of how that can be shown and be seen. So it's interesting, like I'm a crier and I see you, I'm like, oh no, you don't seem like a crier. You seem like a tough person, but yes, you are tough and you cry. And that is like part of the, part of the, the healing. Yeah. And somebody told me years ago that vul- being vulnerable is being powerful. Mm. And it, it took me at least a year to truly dive in and understand that concept. And I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I really can take those two things and they live inside of me. Mm-hmm. And I think, but it also shows in, in my work artistically, Yeah, being able to connect with these women and create this safe space where we can talk about loss and broken marriages and this and that, and then, and get these beautiful photos. And it's an experience that has left a wonderful mark, not only on them, but myself. And um, yeah, so I do think that through a lot of this experience with Rosalie, my vulnerability and strength have just become so much stronger and just so much more intertwined. And I I feel so grateful for it. Mm -hmm. I think also, we don't think a lot about we, we reference vulnerability a lot, we reference courage a lot and bravery. But these are all things that are by practice. Like, mm-hmm. like courage and bravery and vulnerability. It's not just like a feeling. It's in practice that these things are expressed, right? So you don't just sit and feel courageous. There has to be an action. You have to be doing something that makes you courageous, whether it's saying something when you're afraid to say something or doing something when you feel like doing the opposite thing or, you know, having to tell something in the depths of your being that you don't ever want to vocalize in front of people that you don't know or whatever that is. But it's through practice that courage, bravery, and vulnerability exists and which inherently makes it so hard to practice, mm-hmm. right? It's like this right. hard cycle. Um, so thank you for talking about that as well. Yeah. You say in this um, gorgeous breakdown on this post, um, talk about your child and your experience and don't let what others may be thinking or making them uncomfortable. Wait, am I saying this right? Talk to your child and your experience and don't let what others may be thinking or be making them uncomfortable stop you. The stigma around child loss is horse shit. Poetic. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just that. Um, yeah, I think that through some of my experience of, you know, speaking A, about my experience, speaking about Rosalie, it has made certain people in my life uncomfortable and um, I think on my very first list that I wrote six years ago, I think like maybe, you know, five down was you're going to lose friends. And mm-hmm. through my ability to talk about my experience and even in just like regular, you know, coffee date scenarios and talk about it. And, and it's more matter of fact. And at this point, that it made people really uncomfortable. And then certain people just distance themselves. And it hurt at first, but at this point, I just think that's life. You know, that can happen in all different forms. It doesn't just have to be about, you know, stillbirth. Um, but I think again, because it's something that is not talked about on the reg, um, 
that people are just so uncomfortable. They don't, they don't have any tools. I think, and I think you and I being curious people and trying to be like problem solvers, like I feel like so many people, the bulk of people, they don't have a set of tools, right. To be able to, okay. So like, you know, you've never dealt with this before. For example, we sit and have coffee. You don't have any tools. You have no tools while I'm saying, here's my experience. And you're like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And then say you go and you talk to a therapist or you go to a group and you're like, you know, my friend, she's going through this thing. And then you gain a couple tools. Then we have coffee a couple months later and you say, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. What can I do? And you're, you're starting to use these little tools, right? That are, it doesn't seem like you're doing a lot, but you actually are and you're engaging. And I think that's the thing is that there's this lack of engagement with a person that has had the trauma and the person that wants to help. Um, and I think also people are so scared to engage because they think they're going to either say the wrong thing or they don't know what to do. And it's, it's fear-based. And I mean, I could tell you, I could write a list of things that people have said and it is not cute. It is, I have a really good sense of humor, pretty dark sense of humor. That shit is whack. It's bad. It's a bad list. It's a bad list. It's a bad list. Yeah. I think you're touching on something that is really important that I think is something that's, again, very easy. Well, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. Let's put it that way. Or it's easy, but it's not simple. So that engagement that I think what I'm hearing you say is talking about is what a lot of people have a hard time doing, which is holding space, mm-hmm. like and, and not having a solution for someone and not having advice and not having suggestion and not having to say the perfect thing, because it's not about you solving this problem because you cannot and you will not be able to. And I think the anxiety in that moment for people who are highly empathetic or even um, are sympathetic, and there is a difference. Um, to feel like they have to do something like how can I fit and, and, and it's the anxiety that people feel of like I can't stand this feeling how can I make it better how can I fix it maybe I can say something maybe I can give a, a um, some advice some some suggestion but none of that is going to matter because truly when someone is in the shit they rarely want a solution and rarely are you going to find that solution for them even therapists are not paid to give you solution or advice they are sit there they are paid to sit there and listen to you and help you find your way Mm-hmm. They are not there to give you solutions. Um, so that holding space is like really hard to do because you have to confront your own anxiety. And it's really hard to practice because it's, again, a practice of discomfort. You know, very rarely does holding space feel really great because you are trying to navigate the space for them where they can say and be truthful about what they need to say. Right. And, and you just hold that space for them. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, I'm glad that you met, you said that word engagement, because I think that's, that's the deal. And I think for nothing else as a first tool for someone, like start noticing how badly you want to fix this moment, how quickly you need to try to make a joke, how badly you want to offer some kind of advice, how badly you want to offer a scenario, a similar thing. Well, in my experience, when I had this, yep. right? No, just don't. Yeah. Just don't. You know, like, something that's so easy, Jillian, is literally just saying, I am so sorry. If yeah. you don't know what to say, just say those words and just look them in the eye. And that it's just it's a it's a perfect moment. Right. 
Right. Because it is like this is shitty. This is yeah. shitty. I hate it. And it's this. like you said, it's it's the person on the other side is being seen and heard in this space. And in those moments of grief and trauma, you just want to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's it. You wrote on this post, sadness will sneak up on you. Embrace it. Yeah, she sure does. And you just, wrote, sorry, no, times. go ahead. No, I was just saying, like I said, just in very, you know, either inconvenient or just times that are totally out of left field. Like I saw a little girl on a scooter and she was probably around the age that Rosalie would be. And it just snuck mm-hmm. up on me, mm-hmm. you know? Grief is most definitely not linear. Grief continues to be one of life's greatest teachers. Linear. I'm so glad you said linear too, because that has been something I've talked about in all types of recovery, whether you're recovering from an injury, from an addiction, from a trauma, from PTSD, from a grief, all of it in recovery, it's so not linear. And I think we as a society because we are um, production-based or like results-based, right? Like Mm -hmm. everything has to be a result, that everything should be somehow linear. And in my experience, nothing worth a shit is linear. (laughs) Like nothing nothing truly hard is actually linear. And um, as, as, you know, in the recovery rooms, people, one of the sayings, if you're in like an AA, recovery room, they talk about relapse as a part of recovery. So Mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with what recovery looks like, you would hear that and be like, well, no, that would be the, right. That would be the opposite of a, of what the goal perceived goal would be as far as, you know, actually hitting that uh, arrival place, I guess, for lack of a better word. So, and they talk about, they say, you know, uh, relapse is part of recovery and, and almost like relapse is a terrible word because it didn't, I feel like there's a negative connotation with it, but getting, you know, surprised by grief out of nowhere, it is not linear. You, 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 it may never not be that situation where something doesn't affect you in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no start point and end point in that sense. Yeah. Um, you write, people don't seem to realize, and you spoke about this a little bit. People don't seem to realize that when you have a stillborn baby, you still have to endure labor bleeding, postpartum come down, drugs, a wide range of hormones, all while planning a funeral, burying your child, keeping your marriage in order, and walking into a pain that is inescapable. Yeah. 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 I think that, I think that people have this idea of maybe I should or shouldn't lump miscarriage in there with stillborn but that there's just like, there's just no, there's no baby. Like it's just, this thing happens and then you come out of the hospital and it's wild to me. Right. Like that because how, you didn't have the baby, you didn't have all these other things that accompany that. Correct. And that there's like, the baby wasn't real and it wasn't a real person and that I'm just going to go back to my normal life. Like there's this chunk of time of something that is so real so intense, beautifully traumatic, will live with me forever. And it's something that 98% of people will never understand 
and maybe the 2% is because they're like you, you're curious, you want to know. And it's, um, it's really wild is the only way that I can encapsulate it. It's just that people truly thought that once that was over, that I was just going to, you know, go back to work and just do all these things. And I had to heal my body. I had to heal my mind. I was in the deepest, darkest depression. I had to go and pick out a headstone. I had to go and meet with all of these doctors to review an autopsy. Hmm. Shit that I never in a million years would have thought. And I'm sitting in this like cold conference room having a huge panic attack. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are like, oh, she, you know, it's been two months. She's probably fine. People that I thought would have way more compassion and empathy too. Mm. So, yeah, there's like, a whole chunk of time, dude. I, I can't get past the idea that like babies are so much work. Like, and it's on top of like the, what the body, what, what a woman's body has to endure. And then the breastfeeding and all the things like that didn't stop because this stopped like you, you did like, so, and women, the hormonal shifts of anyways, and depending on where you're at on the spectrum, like if you, you know, it's, I don't know if it's been decided yet, if people are predisposed to more PT or um, sorry, to more postpartum if they have a history of depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, but even without the hormonal balance, so delicate, there's so many women that go through postpartum with a baby to, to, to not, and then have the body doing all those crazy things and the boobs and the things and the leaking and the thing, like, I, I don't know how, like, I find it so curious that people can't see that. And I guess maybe that's the difference between empathy and sympathy is the empathy of like, I like the ability to put yourself in someone's shoes, truly go through that experience in detail or to like sympathize, like, Oh, that's terrible for you. Well, it's from afar. Sympathy is from afar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point, I mean, I, you know, I had engorged breasts. I had to put the frozen cabbage leaves on. I had to create the pads with all the aloe gel, like the whole thing around the clock. And I mean, I was in physical pain because I had to let, my ducks dry up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause my body's still thinking like, oh, there's a baby somewhere, you know, and right. I had to shut it down. And it was, it was unbelievably intense. And I think it was yet another layer of grief and that prior to being pregnant, I was probably in the best shape of my life. I mean, I was just training all the time, eating really well. Like I was just really fit and felt really good about myself. And so to have been that person shifted to like, oh, I'm going into this, like this new role of, um, you know, motherhood. And I, it's sort of like a new identity. And then all of a sudden it's just, the rug is just taken out. And I'm like, it's like a cartoon character where you like pull the rug and, you know, it's like you're spinning there like naked in this pregnant body, but there's no baby there's just a plethora of issues of like body dysmorphia and, you know, identity crisis and depression and anxiety and all these things. And it was like, 
a fucking perfect storm for wanting to numb numb myself mm-hmm. and isolate. And I didn't know who I was. It was fucking terrible. It was the darkest, just unbelievably darkest time of my life. And I didn't really realize how there was going to be the second pillar of grief around my physical body. Mm. And it's something that is, I'm still working on like with professionals and it's Mm. really hard. It's really, you know, it's a real mind fuck. And, um, but it's the truth. And I think that, you know, by talking to you about this, if there's somebody out there that is going through that and feels alone in that, that they're not, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's, plenty of people out there that'll, you know, that can't help. And there's ways to get through it. It is hard though. It's very hard. Yeah. It's, this is emotional war. Like you, you would never like, you get why someone who's gone to war would need to talk to someone else who's gone to war. Right. Cause like those of us that aren't having drop bombs dropped on us can't quite relate the same way, but you went through emotional war. And so if anyone's listening, that's also gone through that same war, like, I I don't know how I don't know how you could continue without talking to other people who have done like it's just such a very uniquely difficult situation um that I don't think anyone can true like I don't think anyone can come close unless they've gone through it. Right. Um speaking of, you know, the numbing, the next thing you wrote on this eloquent post is drinking wine will not make the pain go away. It doesn't. And I had a total aha moment after like, I think we just, cause it was November, I think like November into February, it was just like, we were in New England, just cuddling up and just drinking wine. And, and that's just what we were doing or I was doing. And it just got to a point where it was like, this isn't making anything better. And I got clearance from my doctor about going to the gym and I started moving my body again. And, and I, yeah, I finally just a great amount of joy in being able to move my body again. And I sort of had to like shake hands with this new vessel and be like, Hey, I'm old Mia. Hey, I'm new Mia. Like let's get to know each other and figure the shit out together because it's, it's, it's all going to be different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from here to here and it was, was, and is still a journey. And, but I think again, being somebody who is, I'm very aware of myself and my body and being a athlete for a long time. I think being able to put all those things together and realize like you're going to, if you start moving, like things in your life will progress. And it's 100% true. Like it Mm -hmm. most definitely helped. You wrote, people don't know what the fuck to say. Just accept it and move on. We definitely talked about that. And I, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, You write, child loss is one of the most isolating experiences a person can endure. Yeah. It's really hard to tell people where you are in your, in that minute, in that day and, and being, just being transparent, being honest. And people are like, what the fuck? Right. It's hard enough for you to have to say it, right? Because on any given day, it could be more sensitive, less sensitive, you know, like, it depending on where you're at in the process, but then to then uh, not know 
how people are going to react. Like the lady at the wedding, <laughs> like you just like, oh, great. Now, you know, yeah. Um, you write sharing your story and journey can bring new people into your life who you would never know you needed. It's an unexpected gift. I have a really great example of that. Um, I want to say this was probably either late December, early January, um, 2016. And a woman that was, um, she headed up this women's networking group in, in Providence. And I'd done a bunch of events with her and she's so lovely. And she hit me up on messenger and she was like, Oh my God, how's the baby? Blah, 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 blah. Like even posted anything. And I was getting a lot of those and I was like, Oh my God. And I just briefed her and she was like, Holy shit. I'm an idiot. And I was like, you're not an idiot. Like how, how would you have known? So when we started chatting and she said, um, I'd really love to virtually connect you with a really good friend of mine. She's part of the networking group and she's had a somewhat similar experience. And so she connected us through email and then I got the girl's phone number. And then I said, would you be willing to just grab coffee? And so we met at this park by my house and we hit it off like immediately. We walked for probably two, three hours and, you know, we just did like some pleasantries and then we just like got into the nitty gritty, which I appreciated that it wasn't like, you know, okay, we need to do like 30 minutes of fluff before we can get to the real stuff. We just jumped in and not only was she unbelievably like such a beautiful person, she was so transparent and gave very specific examples. She injected some dark humor, which I was like, sold on this bitch. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, she asked me how I was doing. She asked me where, like how my, me and Rich were doing and how, like, she asked me all the questions. And I was like, this is my, this is one of my people. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know it yet, but she is. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we've stayed friends since, and she's been there, you know, for me in a lot of ways. And I still, to this day, I still write her notes and send them and like how much she has impacted my life. And, you know, our families are like intertwined now and I know our kids and, um, it was a little silver, silver lining to this shitty ass storm. So I'm super grateful. And then all the other people, I mean, in April of 2017, we were getting ready to move to Boston because I had realized that I could not keep living in the environment that we had created our life. Everything was reminding me of this path that we were expecting to, to take to this journey to go on. And for me, I needed to shake it up and just go to a different city. And so I was in April, I was in the middle of packing and, um, just sitting in the basement. And I said, I need to pull my phone out. And I just started writing in my notes just about my experience, just a couple little sentences. And then like a week later, I said, you know what? I feel like I, I need to post this mm -hmm. and not for pity, not to put it out there, not to get likes. I was just, I'd gotten so many messages from people like, Hey, I haven't heard from you. Are you okay? Where's the baby? Blah, blah, blah. And so I just put together a really short, succinct post. And it had a picture of Rosalie's headstone with some flowers from the funeral. And it just had a couple things, you know, one in 160 stillbirths, like a couple like factual things. And then just how I was doing or something like that. Mm -hmm. The response to that post was nothing that I had ever expected. I mean, 
like a thousand people commented. It was crazy. I got so many private messages from people, people I haven't talked to in 20 years. Like somebody I went to high school with was like, I had a very similar situation. The only people that know are my my parents and my husband's parents. Like we don't we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like we don't ever go to the, you know. And then then people through people. I got an email from somebody, um, a friend of Rich's friend's stepmom or something was like, hey, our daughter-in-law is going through this right now. We don't know what to do. How can we help her? Mm-hmm. And then we had this dialogue back and forth and she was like, oh my gosh, this has been so helpful. And then this person, and then I just started getting all of these letters and it, it's so interesting. It was, it, I felt so responsible you know, I think I felt very responsible with my story and how I presented it and giving that information and and putting that out there. I didn't realize what was going to come back to me. And not only was it other people's stories, but it was the being seen and being heard. And I, it made me feel less alone. And the fact that I got responses back that I was like helping people in in some way, I felt like I had this sort of moral obligation to keep giving little bits of my story. Mm-hmm. Because I know for myself, like I, when I was going through all this, like I didn't know anybody that went through this. So I, I researched everything I could find on the interwebs. I watched the movie with, um, what's it called? Zero to 60. Um, with Minnie Driver and it's about stillbirth. And my friends were like, you cannot watch any of this stuff. I was like, no, I am, I'm very curious. And I want to feel connected to people that have had a similar experience, whether they're fictional or not. Mm-hmm. I read every like book about it and I was going to different groups. And I think being able to go to these different groups, either with myself or with my significant other and being able to just stand up, you know, wobbly legged and tell my version of my story and then listen to eight other women or couples talk about their story. It was to me, those rooms of storytelling are, these are the threads that like weave us all together, connect us as human beings. And even though it was such a shitty, shitty time in my life, I felt so connected to people mm-hmm. and stories and that we're all, yes, we all put our pants on the same way, but we're all going to experience grief and trauma in some form. And I think the more that we just get over ourselves and, you know, realize that that's the goddamn truth, that it's just going to, we'll, we'll all just be better for it. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I love that you bring up like these types of support groups, because I do think that they're really, really important in uh, recovery and whatever recovery is. I think a lot of people's knee jerk reaction is to let the shame of whatever the situation is silence them or the uh, like by somehow they'll be able to protect themselves through privacy and nothing could be further from the truth. Like there is a freeing that comes like the the truth will set you free. It really does. When you speak, whether your voice is shaking or not, mm-hmm. your truth, and then you do it over and over and over again with people who are going through the same thing. It's really, really powerful for healing. It's a very, very, very powerful 
tool for healing. Um, you wrote, um, the loss in your life will provide room for a new opportunity for greatness, a new version of yourself. Dig deep, say hello to the new you, shake hands and live, live your damn life. Yeah. And you, you kind of, you talked about that body wise and you talked about that, you know, um, that new version. Yeah. Like who are you now? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's a statement that it's not like I say it, I'm on to the, you know, the next phase of my life. It obviously has taken me, you know, six years to feel like I'm in this, I feel like I'm in this new phase. I feel like the last maybe year and a half, I've really been able to solidify, not solidify. Um, I feel like I'm living a pretty authentic life and I feel like I found my, one of my biggest purposes, which is photography and telling that's my love language. That's how I see so much of the world and interact with the world. And, um, it has provided me with this experience. I'm able to through a camera, with a camera, with this business, connect with people and create a human experience. And I think also like taking my hospitality experience and throwing that in there and making people feel good and feel comfortable and goofy and all these things, I've, I'm creating something that I didn't even know that I needed. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, during the pandemic, I'm like, I got to figure something out for work and money and purpose. And you know, I step back, you know, two years later and I'm like, oh yes, it's all those things, but it's also been a huge tool for me for healing. And I'm grateful for that every single day. And, you know, like I said earlier, this opportunity to have very meaningful engagement with people and by creating the safe space, I mean, people have opened up to me and I mean, I was a bartender forever, so people were like always opening up to me, but this is like on a different level. And it's it's really, I take it very seriously. I, I take what people are offering and sharing. I feel very humbled that, you know, this woman, we did a shoot a couple months ago and she said, you know, this is my, um, I'm celebrating. No, I said, why are you here? What are your adjectives today for your shoot? You know, I always try to like pump people up that way. And, and she said, I think my adjective is, you know, survivor or something like that. And he said, oh, tell me more. And she said, today is 12 years cancer free. And, and I had her fucking floating around the room and she was like a queen. And, mm-hmm. and I got to share that with her. And then, you know, these just, just little moments. So I don't know. I'm just going on a tangent at this no, point. No, <laughs> no, I, the, you know, the, the, the social media is such a interesting thing. Um, and it's, you know, I think what you've done as far as posting these kind of epiphanies you've had, or these things, these kind of like poignant moments in your journey, um, starts, it opens that avenue for conversation for people who need to connect and who Mm -hmm. can connect. Um, and I think there's something like very, 
that can be very not great with social media for people who aren't necessarily looking to connect. They're looking to throw their experience and then peace out and either gain some kind of, you know, maybe some kind of recourse with people. But I think there's such a big difference in what you've done and how you've said it. And it's very much, you know, it's not, I don't know, the way you've done is just so different to me than other things that I've seen. It's, 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 it's sort of like an update, but it's also very poetic. It it feels like creative writing to me. Also, I think it's also an invitation for people who are suffering. I think it gives people um, a pass to relate to some of these things, even if they haven't had an idea, Mm -hmm. um, um, a, a similar experience. And so I just, I, I love these posts. I don't love that you have to make them. I don't love that you have had to go through these things to write these posts, but I think they're so important. Um, and in the end of this post, you write, um, I'm grateful to know that I've gotten strength. I've gotten stronger over the last six years. I'm grateful for shared stories of loss and grief that have helped me heal. I'm grateful for finding photography again. It has truly helped me find my voice and purpose again. I love you, Rosalie Grace. And I just, like, I love it. Like, I think it's so beautiful. Uh, And I hate that tragedy has to be beautiful. Like, I I hate it. Um, But I just love everything you've written and how you've walked this journey. Um, You mentioned Buddhism a little bit as a spirituality. Um, uh, Is there... And and on the end of spirituality, what, what I'm really getting to mm-hmm. in this question is, do you have any unexplained or mystical, magical experiences that you want to share that you've found along this journey? I have like one. This is so like woo woo, but I I'm definitely not a religious person. It's something that uh, that could be a whole nother podcast, but um, I definitely find myself to be like a spiritual person. Um, I really like the patterns and cycles of the moon. You know, I love full moon release. I like new moon intentions. I kind of, that's kind of where I fall. And I would say probably six months or so after Rosalie passed, the weather was getting nicer out. And I had I had gone to some flower shop and I found these like really beautiful, like miniature yellow roses. And, um, and I said to Rich, I'm like, I want to go down to the park. Cause there's this little like rose garden by where we lived. And we went down there and I said, you know, it's, it's a full moon and I'd love to just go lay under the full moon and just release energy, so on and so forth. And so we did. And it was such, the sky was so weird that night. You could like see the moon, but then there are all these like cloud patterns. and I don't know if I was just staring so hard, like trying to set intentions, but these clouds were moving and I, like, I saw Rosalie and she was like, the clouds were like coming at me. And it was just this, I was trying to explain it to him. He's like, I think maybe I see it. I don't know. He wanted to, he wanted to see it. He wanted to have it. But it was, it was just this unbelievable experience. And I, I felt like she was just wrapped around me. And I felt like I was starting to really get out of whatever phase of grief that I was in. I think I was starting to walk into like a little bit of a lighter phase. And I felt like in that moment, she was telling me that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And I've had little moments like that. Um, 
here and there, but I wouldn't say anything like majorly mystical. Well, no, I mean like all the, uh, everybody has these little things and they, you know, they mean something to everyone who experiences them. And so at the end of the day, like whether it's big, whether it's small, whether you could prove it scientifically or not, like, you know, I just love hearing about them. I think they're powerful. Um, I have one last question for you. Oh my gosh, only one? I know. Well, Keep we, them coming. We talk, you could talk more. You want to talk? I, I do like your idea of a, of a, a podcast on religion. I should do a whole season on reco- recovering from religion. Um, yes. Because <laughs> I could qualify for that. Um, so, oftentimes on the podcast, I try not to give advice. Um, I don't want people to have to give advice, I don't mm-hmm. think people usually want advice. Um, but I do like to ask, um, if you have any suggestion for someone who might be suffering right now. Okay. So a few things I would say, find some sort of group, some sort of connection, um, whether it's, uh, PALS, P-A-L-S, it's pregnancy after loss support. There's another one that I went to called, I think it was called MIS, M-I-S or M-I-L-S, uh, miscarriage infant loss, stillbirth. Um, but I can find all these and send them to you if you want to put them in your show notes. Yes, we will. But I um, I went to a bunch of these groups and they were really integral in especially those first like six to eight weeks of getting up and getting out of the house, but also being in a room where there were other people with very, very similar stories. And then also challenging myself to be courageous, to stand up and tell my story. And it also helped me sort of put a lot of pieces together because I think when you go through trauma, you can like sort of miss pieces, misplace them. So it helped me sort of put everything back together, but it also helped me connect with people. And then Rich and I got connected with a couple because um, our experiences were two days apart. And then we like knew people through people. It was very weird. Um, we ended up like going to their wedding and so on and so forth, but it's a really great experience in my experience to be in these rooms and to at least just go, if you don't want to say anything, but just be there and listen and be, at least be seen. You don't need to be heard, but just at least be seen. Um, so I would say that would be number one. I would say, find yourself a therapist. My experience, I will just give you a quick little um, synopsis. I had been given a, um, a grief counselor. (laughs) So I go and, you know, I, she did that in quotes in case you're only listening. Really slow, (laughs) big, big, giant, slow quotes, a grief Um, counselor. Yes. So, yeah. So I had a, a, this grief counselor and I mean, at this point I was, I was a disaster. I was really in a deep, dark place and to leave my house took a lot of energy. So I would, you know, I was going over to her office and we had a couple of sessions and I was telling her where I was at. And then, so say this like third, fourth or fifth session I came in, I said, I'm, I'm really, really having a hard time and I want to address this specifically. Basically I, when I would leave my house, whenever I did, if I went up the street to get coffee at my regular coffee spot, 
this one particular day I went up, I had huge Jackie O sunglasses on. I was like bundled up and I was like, please, please, please do not let anybody I know be working today. And of course I walk in, it's my favorite girl behind the bar. And she's like, oh my God, girl, what's going on? And she's like, where's the baby? Where's the baby? Where's the baby? And it's this whole thing. And I just start like, there's just streams of tears. And finally she's like, oh my God. And you know, I have to tell her what's going on. So it's super awkward. And I basically told this grief counselor, I'm like, so this situation happens a lot. And I said, I literally feel like I have no armor. I said, so I need some tools and I just could use anything. Like, can you guide me here? And she says, she's on her clipboard. She goes, hmm, I'm going to have to Google that. Oh, no. Oh, For no. $300 an hour? Girl. Yeah. So there's Speechless. That. Speechless. Speechless so right now. I'm speechless. Yeah. So there was that. So I had to make my way. I did some speed dating of therapists. Mm-hmm. And then I came and I, I found one and they were wonderful. And they were exactly what I needed. And so I would say definitely get into some rooms and some groups. Find yourself, whether it's a life coach or a therapist, but find somebody that aligns with you has experience with grief or, you know, whatever it is that you feel like you need and then find your people Um, just to sort of piggyback off your, your phrase. But I think truly being able to find your people. um, I mean, from my own experience, the, the women friends and family members that I have that supported me in that time, I will, I can never repay the conversations that I've had, like some really raw conversations, some really fucking dark, sick, twisted humor kind of shit, like all of it. And how people showed up was, it's just incredible. So, and ask for, ask for what you need, ask for what you want. Don't be afraid because you can't, you can't do it all by yourself. Mm -hmm. Can't. Yeah. And the other one thing that helped me, and it might not help everybody, is art. Mm-hmm. Finding some something to do with your hands. Like I, I got back into ceramics and I started throwing and I was like, holy shit, I forgot how good I am at this. Um, and started drawing again. And then obviously with photography. But find some sort of art that will let your mind go. That's great. Great suggestion. Yeah. Mia, thank Jillian. you. Thank you. Thank Just you. Oh my gosh, this has been so, so good. And so how I, I just, I think you're so all of the things, all of the bravery, all the vulnerability, all of the courageousness, all of the everything. And, you know, like, I, I don't know if you're in the same boat as me. Uh, when I talk about difficult things, people say that that's, you know, bravery or courageous or, you know, strong or strength or whatever. It never feels that way to me, but that's the feedback I get. And I don't know how it feels for you, but holy shit, girl, you're like a rock. You're like. It takes practice though. You got to practice. It's true. That's true. Yeah. So I yeah. think that you, maybe you don't feel like you're being courageous, but it's just because you've been practicing it for so long. That's true. I have been practicing. Um, and I can tell you've been practicing. Yes, Log in some hours. Thank you so much yeah. for coming. And anytime. And story. Yeah. Anytime you want to do some sad girl stuff. (laughs) I, you know, you, yes, yes to the sad girl stuff, always to the sad girl stuff, but you know, there's so many, 
I have I have so many ideas for future seasons, and I'm going to find a way to bring you back on another. I one. would love to. I love Absolutely. the religious one. I love it. This is a good idea. The religious girl. One. That's going to be that'll be number right. one. <laughs> Thank you so much for you are the your absolute time. best. I'm so glad we're connected. Thank you. You're welcome. I honestly don't know how to wrap up Mia's episode. I can remark on her strength, her indomitable will, her grace, her courage and bravery to share such vulnerability. At the same time, I'm wrecked that she had to go through it. And in these moments, where there doesn't seem to be any answers or justice, I feel so completely powerless, helpless, and speechless. This is what we fear. This is what we try to get out of or go around. So I sit in it because that's what Mia's had to do. And I'm reminded that there's no way around it, only through it. I'm indebted to Mia for her willingness to share her story and process on Gray Maybe. And I hope her story reaches everyone it could help. But specifically, I hope it reaches her people. If you're listening to this episode and you're experiencing grief, welcome, and I hope this helps your journey. You're not alone. Just a reminder, for anyone who needs to hear it, you don't need to have experienced a giant catastrophic event or a death to experience grief. Know that whatever you're feeling, there are those among us who have probably felt it too. You're not alone. If you're listening and you have someone you love in your life that is grieving, welcome. You are also not alone. We as a society have a long way to go in being able to tolerate and help those closest to us manage grief. I've included a link in the show notes for the do's and don'ts, which I'm going to read here. Don't assign positive meaning to their loss. In our effort to encourage and support the griever, we may try to project the current situation into a better future way too soon. Saying, time will heal all things, is not helpful. Prophesizing a future positive meaning on top of the grieving person's crushing and devastating loss, tends to minimize the griever's current agony, essentially suggesting that they sweep their pain under the rug while focusing on some potential positive long-term outcome. Stay in the moment with the griever. Follow the grieving person's lead. Be an attentive, active listener. Allow the griever to take the conversation where it needs to go. Make room for plenty of silence. Don't jump in to fill space with unnecessary commentary. Sometimes before a two-way conversation can even begin, the griever just wants someone to sit with, literally or virtually. No questions or words of comfort are needed to fill silence. Presence is often what the griever really needs. On their own, sometimes the grieving person will identify a silver lining or hopeful thought that adds meaning to their loss. This is a normal and often constructive way to cope with grief. Remember, the griever is the only person who can know what this loss means to them. Only the griever can make meaning of their experience. Once they do so, it's appropriate to support them in their newfound hope. Use the name of the lost loved one. While you are comforting the griever, 
all of their emotions are tied up in the loss of their beloved. Saying their loved one's name out loud is a way of validating the life of that person. Say Anne, not your sister. Say Alan, not your son. Say Stu, not your husband. Don't ever be afraid to mention the person lost. Grievers want to talk. Memories are all that remain after a loss, and talking about the person who died helps to keep them alive in broken hearts. Refrain from platitudes. Refrain from platitudes, religious or otherwise, like, they are in a better place, or time heals all things, or everything happens for a reason. Don't pretend that you know the answer. You don't. No one does. As a person who desires to support a griever, pay attention to what you say. Never say anything that starts with the phrase, at least. Comparing and contrasting your own grief experiences or dreamed-up hypothetical ones with the reality of the loss that just happened is missing the mark in several ways. Making your loss the topic of conversation is asking the grieving person to switch their focus and empathize with your grief at a time when the total focus should be on them. Don't say, I know how you feel. You don't. Seems to me describing how something worse could have happened represents a thwarted attempt to say something, no matter how unhelpful. Stay out of your empty word, ill-informed autopilot script. Choose not to go there. Be open to the expression of any emotion. As an active listener, be open to any emotions the griever may express through verbal or nonverbal means. Anger, yelling, silence, rage, disbelief, denial, crying, pacing around the room, shouting, rocking back and forth, wringing hands, clenched fists, avoiding eye contact, needing to be held, avoiding touch, etc. Be observant about what the griever is expressing, overt or subtle, and allow a safe space to be in that moment. Do not in any way tell them not to feel what they are feeling. Remember anniversaries. Try to remember anniversaries such as the birthday of the person who died and the anniversary of the date of their death. Sending a card or a text will let the griever know that you are remembering too, reminding them that they are not alone. If you've made it this far, Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. If you'd like to show your support for this podcast, consider making a donation on Spotify. It would also be very helpful if you could rate, share, comment, and subscribe. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor, Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel, Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. Special shout out to supporter, Patty Olgan. Until next time, bye for now.